Well, welcome back to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and I'm really pleased to be back with you today. For the whole of March has been my turn to get COVID, and so we've got a little bit of a delay for this next podcast, but I'll tell you, it's been well worth waiting for. It's another one in the series that we've been doing concerning human trafficking, and specifically those people that work at uh, ATII, which is... uh, the, the Institute Intelligence Gathering Institute for ATII for human human trafficking, and I've got Chris Kemp with me today, who's the senior operations manager. And I know we've talked to Chris before, but we're going to do this as a special today. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dave, and I, I appreciate you you bringing me on today. It's a it's a great pleasure to be here. Now, well, your colleagues have been fine, and they all say that you're going to be fine too, so I'm really looking forward to it. Now, I think the best thing to do, Chris, just to set the scene, if you wouldn't mind, is to give people an idea of what your role entails. I mean, I, I'm sure it's got a myriad of of responsibilities and duties, but just to give people a, a sense of it, could you talk for a minute or two about what you, what you actually cover? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Uh, so, as a senior operations manager, I'm in every one of uh, the anti-human trafficking intelligence initiatives footprints from a program and strategic perspective. So, I kind of guide the boat, as it were, for all the uh, the arms of ACI. I answer to our our CEO Aaron Kaler, our our COO Ren York, and our newly acquired CDO. Samantha Stapleton and all things strategic for for ATII. Right. There, I mean, and that's that's just that's just the morning. So, what do you do in the afternoon? <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, You've got such a role there. I mean, I talked to you briefly before, and we mentioned a whole different things that you do, such as you you have got a, a oversight of all your interns. Is that right? Uh, yes, I am the, the acting supervisor for ATII uh, with regard to the relationships we have with a number of academic institutions and their students that come on board to our, our intern program. And it's a degree program, isn't it? Um, we are at, at the present moment. It's basically accreditation or experience for those mm-hmm. students who want to glean more knowledge about the cybersecurity realm, digital evidence collection, and open source intelligence collection. Okay. I mean, open source is a very interesting phrase. I mean, it's it's not one that came into my vocabulary until a few years ago. Do you want to say what a little bit about open source intelligence is, how you gain it, how you what the methodology would be to actually gain that intelligence and how you would then disseminate that to other parties because you're you're part of a multi a multi agency kind of grouping aren't you in terms of who you actually look to who you work with and who you get some intelligence from and who you give it to so do you want to explain just a little bit about how these things work well, open source intelligence i'll start i'll start there it's it's yeah. very simple explanation um it's information publicly available so it does not have a specific place where it lives. It's not protected by any regulatory boundaries or legal boundaries. So in the U.S., the Fourth Amendment, the uh, 
uh, protection of privacy does not apply to open source because all the information we're collecting is from publicly available locations. Okay. As as to how it's you know, collected and distributed, the, that methodology is very sought after, highly sought after. So I won't go into too much detail there. However, I will tell you that we are global and that we interact with multiple public and private sector entities providing them information to direct their resources and allocate time towards specific problematic issues within the human trafficking space. Okay. Now, my understanding is you've got about 200 um, trained and vetted volunteers around the globe um, working um, on several different fronts at the time. And if my memory correct is correct, actually you could do with 10 times that in terms of the volume of work that comes up and the number of people it might take for each particular activity. So how's that going? And are you looking to recruit more people? Absolutely. You know, that's that's a never-ending aspect of my my role with ATII is, is onboarding volunteers for our task force because the problem we're facing is huge. Mm -hmm. So the people involved in finding a solution to that problem have to be equally as, as huge and include varieties of, of different skill sets. So we have cybersecurity folks, we have people in digital forensics, we have people that are technology driven individuals, developers, coders, programmers, data science folks, investigators from the private sector, it's a very large conglomerate of individuals from across the entire globe that are okay. working within our. And in most, but in most cases, it's voluntary, isn't it? Yes, it one hundred percent is is volunteer based, hmm. which requires, I, I suspect, quite a an investment, not only on their part but on your part, in terms of supporting them and in terms of encouraging them and in terms of trying to enable them as best possible to do what you've asked them to do. Yeah, it's definitely a very time-consuming um, effort, but it's a very rewarding effort on, on the back end because when you can bring 25 people against a singular, a singular issue within the human trafficking or exploitation space, you, your solvability or probability of solving that solution or solving that issue is greatly increased. Okay. Well, look, anybody with one of the skill sets that you outlined a minute or two ago who might be interested on in listening to this, how would they perhaps get in touch and just check and see if they're worthwhile, if, you know, if it's worthwhile them putting their name forward to help you? Well, they can hit our website at followmoneyfightslavery.org. And there's a contact us tab specifically geared towards volunteer interest. Okay, good. Well, because I mean, I'll put that on the front page of this podcast as well, contact and link details, because I think you never know, you know, you just never know who's listening. And it might just be that even a few extra would be helpful. Um, Could we maybe, or could I ask you maybe to drill down a little bit here? Because I know that you're focusing or ATII is focusing, as you said, in the title of the kind of the subheading you've got, which is... um follow money, fight slavery. The finance sector has become quite a target of yours in terms of both education and uh, investigation. 
to actually look at spotting signs and symptoms of fraud, of, of slavery, of trafficking, etc. I mean, how how do you actually go about that? And, and what, what would you be offering to, say, public-facing, frontline people within the finance sector, which, of course, is huge? Oh, it, it's massive. You know, it's a global infrastructure. Everybody has some inclusion in that space, whether you're a customer or a facilitator or what have you within the, hmm. the financial industry. Hmm. What sort of things could they look out for? Say you were, um, oh, I don't know, a bank teller or, you know, a manager in a, br- a b- branch of a bank or a finance, an insurance company or whatever. I mean, what, what sort of things do you think that any, any reasonable person could be uh, empowered or, or helped to look out for that would be, you know, helpful to your kind of cause? Well, you're you're looking for accounts that have deposits occurring at odd hours, all cash deposits and, you know, immediate withdrawal after the fact. You're looking for customers when they come in that aren't coming in alone. They're with somebody who seems to be speaking on their behalf. They're not saying a whole lot. They're just kind of present because it's their account. They're not really in control of it. Mm-hmm. So just just sort of unusual activity, and the, you know the the whole idea would be a bit like basic safeguarding used to be of any kind of vulnerable children or adults or whatever. I mean, it's the little signs and symptoms that you really ought to share with a colleague and see if between the two of you, you there were any red flags being raised. Well, absolutely. I mean, and that's that's a tough ask for the financial industry because you have. Billions of people on the planet Earth, all of whom, a majority of whom have finances or, or money and they have to store it somewhere. So they have a relationship with the bank. So huge mm-hmm. quantity of um, interaction there. But okay. looking for the those minutiae details, like I had just indicated, within your customer base is hugely important no, to pay attention to, especially, especially at the KYC, where the, you know your customer level when they're first starting their account with your your institution right no point taken it it is quite a huge piece of education that you've taken on here to kind of try and empower the you know the the mass of the finance sector which have is such a global huge entity um but well worth it if you can reach people who can identify odd behavior that leads to rescuing people Oh, absolutely. You know, human beings and the value of life mm. is uh, severely underestimated in today's age because of the disassociation and disconnection of the digital age. I mean, you can do everything on your computer or smartphone now. Yeah. Well, well I'll tell you, one of the things you were talking to me about at another point when we were just chatting before was that there are certain keywords that you probably ask people to look out for. Um, and they also, another sort of name you came up with here and i think i understand what it is but maybe you could just explain it a little onion sites um you know presumably when you peel away layer after layer that they've been disguised for fraudulent purposes i presume is what you're suggesting the onion services are uh have they have appeared on or actually located on the dark web Right, And they're called onion sites because there are multiple layers of encryption 
in place when you access that site. So you're not dealing with a single layer of encryption. You're dealing with three on, on the dark web. So even just looking at it from that perspective, it's very difficult to to navigate in terms of, an, of investigating or gathering intelligence within that space. But you have the, the I mean, you've obviously got the experience, but you've also got tacit permission to, to go so far, haven't you, within intelligence gathering? Within the dark web? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, it, as long as you have safeguards in place before you go on the dark web, use a, a virtual private network proxy service configured firewall and some really 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 outstanding antivirus software then you're not going to have a whole lot of trouble on the dark web getting into it and or worried about the threats that exist there therein yeah. um I mean so most much of our work <laughs> although most of our work doesn't occur inside of the Tor browser which is the browser you utilize to get on the dark web, we we pull the URLs or the uniform resource locator for the onion site off. And then we'd break it apart outside of the dark web in a in a safer environment. I've got you. So you actually take it away to dissect it. Um which is actually, I mean, yeah, totally I totally get that. I mean the whole dark web thing is quite kind of it's got something like mysterious and exciting, but everybody realizes that it's um, a hotbed of criminality. Um, I mean, interestingly enough, though, I believe it's, it sort of was formed in the 60s by the U.S. military. Is that right? It was actually the creation of DARPA. Ah. Initially created for secure communications for the military. But got taken over as things kind of became more sophisticated and, and people became more aware in about in about the eighties. Is that right? I would say probably earlier than that, but it's been more prevalent since the since the early two thousands and the creation of the Tor browser, mm. which was designed for people to have access to communications and, and maintain their privacy. While doing so, that was the the foundation for why they that the the Tor organization built the Tor browser. However, like many other things, once it hit the the market and our uh, opposing parties and criminalities realized that it existed, they were going to jump on board because of that those same protections. So it's kind of a double edged sword, really. No, well, I mean, I know what criminals are always looking for dark areas to hide in, and um, it's just it's, it's so good that there are people around that can actually shine some light on and shine a torch in there. But you work all around the world, don't you, though, Chris? I mean, you know, you're not just limited to the North American continent, are you? No, not by not by any stretch of the word. No, we are we are global. Yeah, if, and if there's end, a spot on the planet. Own... <clears throat> Sorry, go on. If there's a spot on the planet, then uh, we can get to it. We can dig through the bad guys and identify, de-animize, disrupt whatever mm -hmm. they have going on. Mm -hmm. No, I mean I think it's great, but you also work you work with NGOs all around the world, don't you? And networking, and you're developing that network all the time. But and my understanding is that 
essentially they they've got work that they've done or identifications that they've, they've found or, or investigations that they're conducting but you do go in and provide digital support among other things is that is that fair yeah that that's definitely a fair assessment for sure mm. so I remember you mentioning to me, I don't know if it was an actual wish list. I don't think so. I think the way you talked about it, it was like an almost a done deal soon. But how important it would be for you to have what you called a fusion center to do specifically with trafficking. Am I right in thinking that that is something that's uh, important to you? It is, but not necessarily to to us specifically but for the fight itself i mean one of the biggest barriers you're going to you you will find in encountering human trafficking activities are that silos exist mm. every entity and organization in the space whether public or private has their own lane and they want to stay in that lane and they don't want to necessarily <laughs> collaborate within their their space so having a place where uh we could control the flow of information and access to that information, vetting everyone coming in, providing specific information to certain people who have met that tier of entry requirement through the vetting process is hugely fundamentally powerful because mm-hmm. we've seen it in play here here in the United States when you know the US federal government decided in two thousand two that they wanted to launch their own fusion center program, but they allowed the states to kind of build them up and and run them. Right, I get you. I mean, listen, for the last decade all around the world, well, certainly the parts of the world that I've I've had information on, like maybe the industrialized countries or whatever, but there's certainly been a a gallop, if you like, towards multi-agency working and working together in kind of different, different disciplinary teams because... Many of the unfortunate examples over the last 20, 30 years have often been where one particular discipline has actually taken decisions on its own and made mistakes. And so effectively, you know, that reinforced the whole idea of sharing and coming to collective decisions on things. So whether it's law enforcement, social services, health, education, voluntary sector, whatever, Every voice should be heard as possible as part of the assessment process. Is that is that the same kind of principle that you're talking about? Yeah, it is. And to further explain for all the listeners out there, um, I watched an interview two days ago. There was a member of the law enforcement team. I won't specify which agency, um, but he had indicated that human trafficking from a cultural perspective needs to be tackled beyond just the law enforcement realm Mm. because we're not going to arrest our way out of this problem. We have to have everybody involved on the same side, on the same page, tackling this issue from every possible angle because it's so huge that, you know, if we were to try to arrest our way out of it, there's not enough room in the jails that we currently have access to worldwide yeah yeah no i i i get it and and it's it is complicated and there's always kind of another layer i mean the actual kind of um raison d'etre behind why people do it 
it's not just straightforward. It's not just kind of organized crime preying on people, although that's a huge part of it. There's all sorts of other complications, a little bit like um, puppy farmers, uh, you know, who don't have any other source of income or whatever, or people in countries where there's no welfare state that actually sell their children in order to feed the other children in the family. You know, it's never straightforward. These things should be interrupted and stopped. Of course they should. But it's never easy because you're always influencing somebody else down the line. It's a very complicated business safeguarding at macro level that you're talking about and at micro level that exists within each kind of um, country. Is that a reasonable kind of assessment of things? Yeah, it, it it definitely is. From a macro perspective, it's really easy to say, hey, we have a problem and we need to find a solution. But then once you leave that top layer and you start making your way down to the smaller, more ma- micro level, you, you start seeing there are cultural differences. Mm. There are economic issues that are pushing this, this problem, as well as just your plain Jane criminal folks out there who don't care about the law or order or (laughs) other people. Yeah. So it's definitely a tiered issue and has to be approached in in kind of the same fashion. I mean, I I really do have a, a, a lot of sympathy for you in terms of trying to evaluate programs, which are right across multiple borders and lots of different partner agencies that have to be kind of factored in to um, kind of, you know, collaboration. I mean, sometimes it must be hugely difficult to come to a kind of a linear conclusion. It is. And as it's been told to me, and I've heard over over the years, and it's a pretty common adage, when you're trying to take a, to eat a whale, you can't do it in one bite. It's got to be in (laughs) small pieces. Ah uh, yes, yes. Apart from the fact that it tastes disgusting as well, but never mind. That's by the by. Um, how do you, how how do you see the future? Because you do an awful lot of lecturing, an awful lot of workshops, an awful lot of educative processes, don't you? You personally do this, and you actually kind of a lead lead and attend a lot of kind of um, multi agency meetings and and opportunities to kind of educate people. Do you see that as a huge part of your task, your job, or or is it really spread right through all the kind of professionals within ATII? I kind of spread myself out. I mean, I you have to have some monochrome of balance in, in my particular role. Mm-hmm. If I fall into one lane too much, then the other lanes that I'm 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 in won't get the attention they need to keep yeah. progressing our mission forward. So I have to have that balance included. I, I, I'm i all about empowering and delegating. If I can pass off a task to a junior or subordinate or a member of our task force, and they're just as capable of accomplishing that, or maybe they'll learn something through that process, then I'm going to do that because my goal as, operations, as senior operations manager is to make everyone in my team whether they're directly paid by ATI or they're volunteering their time, I want them all to be able to walk away from their experience and do some of the same things that I'm doing because that's part of solving this problem is empowering people 
Do you, do you find, I mean, okay, you've got quite a lot of experience yourself, but, but you'll have memories of when you were starting out. I mean, how do you feel now um, about the future of the work you're doing? Do you, do you feel there's been enough success, however you measure that, that has keeping you motivated? And those that are starting out, if you like, it, you know, working with you, how do you check about their own health and their own capacity to cope with some of the terrible things that, that, that people see? I, I don't know about you, Dave, but I, I, this particular question brings to mind another adage. I love adages and metaphors. <laughs> okay. If you stare into the abyss long enough, the abyss will stare back. And that's true of our world, right? If you're constantly inundated with the dark, then eventually it's going to start affecting you in a negative fashion. So I encourage everyone in our team, volunteers included, to take a, a measure of their mental health regularly. And how, how do they think? How do they how are they feeling? Did they get up this get up this morning and you know have a smile on their face and look at taking on the day with full strength or mm. are they sort of wavering and and then asking themselves why? And we do have meetings on a weekly basis, our internal team, to talk about how we're feeling and what's going on, and to just provide an opportunity for people to offload some things that they're dealing mm. with. I think that sounds that sounds healthy. I, I mean, I just remember from my days in practice that. Same principle applied in that we never I never really could persuade employers enough to put aside proper time for what I would call reflective supervision. Um, you know, where I mean, say, oh, I don't know, you know, everybody of course is human and they all have these human problems, but say there was a divorce or a bereavement or there was domestic violence or something of that occurring within their own home. And you allocate or told them or, or gave them work that involved domestic violence or bereavement or divorce or whatever. I mean, it, it's not exactly the healthiest sort of site for them to go into if you weren't aware of their particular situation. So, I mean, it, it's such a huge number of people, I suspect, for you to cover. But do you feel that there's enough me mechanisms in place to, 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 to support them if they need it? We have an open door policy with ATII, and that's for everybody included. Mm. And our CEO, our COO, CDO, myself, our CISO Larry, our director of intelligence, South Safety Matt, you know, our data data guy Michael, and our investigations manager Adam, and special uh, development manager, senior manager uh, Goodell, we're all on teams, mm -hmm. and we're all available. So if anyone wants to talk or reach out, they're encouraged to do so. No, you sound like they a don't. close team, and that's good. You know, I mean, there's not everywhere, you know, can can offer that. I think that that's really something that needs to be sort of shouted out to all the people working with you. You know, your availability and your understanding. I think that's quite important. And all your colleagues I've talked to as well seem to have the same philosophy, which is quite encouraging and quite healthy. Now, look, look, Chris, we've come to the last question, I'm afraid. But 
it's it's as much to do with what's coming up because i mean we're going to put on the text at the front page if you like of this podcast all the links that you want me to put there and things coming up but there are a couple of things coming up that i'm really quite fascinated for and i just wonder if you could say a quick word about that and then for another maybe another minute or so just how you see the future what what is this dark webathon that that you've got advertised coming up uh, the dark webathon is an opportunity for professionals that have unique skill sets and knowledge about the dark web and blockchain forensics and the cryptocurrency space to come together as a team and spend about a week digging into the dark web and locating new sources of intelligence or evidence of criminal activity and facilitating that process of moving that information to the appropriate authorities so that action can be taken. And it's an opportunity for them to experience that whole process end to end, gain a little bit of better, a, a better knowledge or understanding of that process so they can continue on in their career with that experience powering their decision making day to day. And it's also an opportunity to take a bite out of the bad books on the, that are operating on the dark web <laughs> using cryptocurrency. I, yeah, We're coming I after you. Yeah. We're, we're, we're coming after you. We're coming after you with a whole bunch of participants who are built out of teams that include NGO and law enforcement members. So we're going to find some people that I can I can assure you of that. Every single mm-hmm. one of the drug webathons in the past. This is our third or fourth one, excuse me. When is I've it? I've been hugely when is successful. It? Can you remember? Uh, when it is, it is in June. June, right. I believe it's the 24th. 4th or 26th. I, I have to look at my calendar right. to be specific on well, that's that. That's all right. It's just I'm going to make a mental note to come back to, to, to one of you to find out how it went um, afterwards. Because I'm, I'm really quite fascinated by this. And I really hope you get people with the appropriate skill sets, enough of them coming forward that will really make a difference. Um, one final thing then. Come on, Chris. Thoughts for the future, you know, like Nostradamus, right? You could be Nostradamus for a day in terms of um, trafficking and so forth. Where do you think this is all headed? I think that in terms of for the bad guys out there, your operating space has got to shrink. I can promise you that with the amount of people that are engaged in our space and other NGOs out there and the, the trending on the law enforcement side, gearing themselves up to get into the dark web and the clearing utilize you know typologies and indicators to to find these guys that their operating space is going to shrink so if you think you're willy-nilly running about right now and having a good time making lots of money uh Mm. smile while you can because uh four walls four by four walls yeah they're small and There's I think no you, you've also said to me uh, numerous times in the past, which I find very poignant, that even if your entire working life just saves one child or one particular vulnerable person from trafficking or whatever, that's worth it. I mean, I'm sure you've saved far more than one, but the principle being, even if you only save one, and, and I think that's that's a very good mantra to go for, to go by. Now, there's actually a commencement speech that was provided by... Uh a rear admiral, former Navy SEAL team leader. And he said, uh, he, was, he was talking about changing the world and how every person that in that college class was going to interact with a certain amount of people through the course of their life. And then you multiply that by the total number of students. I think it was three generations from that day, they could have an impact on the entire world. So I think if everyone thought the same way about human mm-hmm. trafficking as a problem, 
and engaged in their own way and within their own capacity we could we could really wrap this up and and you know kick uh, it in the butt really really quickly no i i, I do um, i mean i get it and i really really hope that um that comes true because i mean at the end of the day it's education 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 to a large extent here um in, in the role that you've taken on as part, apart from the investigation side of it and it's a bit like teaching people that I've got no really no real idea of the landscape that you offer operate in. I mean, I heard that you love your little adages. I, I I heard one. It's it's a bit like how can you teach a frog at the bottom of a well to appreciate the ocean? And essentially, you know people really have got to hear about these things that are beyond their understanding at the moment because it is such an, an enormous worldwide criminal activity. And I don't think that the majority of citizens in whatever country really have a good idea of what the heck's going on um, behind the scenes or wherever that people like yourselves in ATII are rooting out all the time. Anyway, look, Chris, last word. What would you like to say to people listening? Pay attention. Open your eyes. It's not a pretty thing to imagine or, or, or accept that it exists, but it does. Yeah. And ignoring it is not going to make it go away. Okay. Chris Kemp from ATII. It's been a pleasure having you a guest on the program. Thank you very much indeed. And I really hope that we can talk again in the future and catch up about how your work is progressing. So thanks very much indeed. You're very welcome, Dave. It's been a pleasure to be on today and uh, I look forward to our, our next chat on the podcast. Good. 